Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week, collecting DNA from one of the world's biggest gatherings of whale sharks. It's actually quite overwhelming because suddenly you're in the middle of this huge group of whale sharks and you can just see fins in every direction. And the story of Harvard Observatory's 19th century female computers. Their data crunching duties soon morphed into discovery duties. And they made very interesting discoveries. Plus, using electron microscopes to build things, not just look at things. This is the Nature Podcast for November the twenty fourth, twenty sixteen. I'm Kerry Smith, and I'm Adam Levy. Whale sharks are sharks, not whales. But if you ever see one up close, you can easily understand how they got their name. They can weigh up to thirty tons and can be almost twenty meters long, making them the largest fish in the world. But despite their huge size, studying them in the vast oceans is like studying a needle in a haystack. A study published in one of Nature's newest journals, Nature Ecology and Evolution, decided to look at the haystack itself for signs of the needles. It uses samples of seawater to study the genetic diversity of whale sharks. I called up the study's first author, PhD student Eva Ilingsisko, to find out why it's important to collect genetic information from these animals in the first place. The whale shark is endangered globally, and we still know very little about it. So, what we actually hope is that understanding more about their genetics can can help us both understand the species better. And based on this, be better at conserving it. And why is this a difficult thing to find out using conventional approaches? The ocean is very large, and、uh, when you want to study these animals in、uh, conventional ways, you actually have to be able to see them, and you have to go and, for instance, take photos of them, sample them. An alternative approach, which has been used mainly in freshwater, is that you can actually. Get DNA out of water samples from whatever organisms are living in the water, and this is because all organisms they shed cells or tissue into the water, and that means that we can actually detect any species that's been in in an area. Where do you actually get your water samples that you analyze for whale shark DNA? Off the coast of Qatar,、uh, every summer there's a huge aggregation of hundreds of whale sharks. And this is quite unique. So what we did was to go out to the aggregation and take water samples of half a liter in the water surface, and these are the samples that we have analyzed for whale shark DNA. 
So what's it actually like collecting the water samples at this big gathering of whale sharks? Can you see whale sharks around you as you're doing it? It's actually quite overwhelming because uh, at first what you see is just a few dark spots on the water, the fins of the sharks. And as you get closer, the number just increases and increases and suddenly you're in the middle of this huge group of whale sharks and you can just see fins in every direction. You could say you get uh, quite motivated to finish the collection <laughs> so, you, so you can get in the water and, and start snorkeling. So you've got these samples from, from the whale sharks and you can see that they represent several different whale sharks. What do you actually learn from that? Um, well, one of the things we can do is that we actually have um, databases online of uh, DNA sequences that scientists all over the world have uploaded. And among these are whale shark sequences from individuals from the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean and so on. So what we can do is to compare our sequences to these sequences. And that way we could actually show that the population in Qatar is more closely related to the Pacific and Indian Ocean whale sharks than they are to the Atlantic ones. Apart from where the whale sharks are from, does this analysis teach you anything else about them? Another thing we looked at is uh, we actually measured the concentration of whale shark DNA in the samples. And we also measured the concentration of DNA from a species of tuna. And this tuna species spawns in the area where the whale sharks aggregate. And it looks like the sharks are actually coming here to feed on the eggs. So this is why we, we did this analysis. And we found a very striking correlation between the, the two uh, concentrations. Since we, we knew that the sharks are feeding on it, this is what we, we hoped <laughs> to see. And I think it suggests a potential for actually investigating marine food webs with this uh, technique. So what are the next steps? What kind of things do you want to find from this technique of looking at environmental DNA? Well, of course, with the new project we're working on, it's, our aim is also to try and, and develop this method further to make it uh, more efficient and, of course, yeah, just to, to look at a broader diversity of animals so, so we can actually monitor whole communities instead of just single species. That was Eva Eling Sisko, who's a PhD student at the Natural History Museum in Denmark. Find her paper in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, nature.com forward slash N-E-E. Still to come in the research highlights, ant agriculture and why you should always finish your veggies. But before that, scientists usually use microscopes to look at things. So imagine the surprise that material scientist Sergei Kalinin and his colleagues got when their microscope changed the material they were looking at. The material, strontium titanate, has two states, a crystalline one with a regular structure and an amorphous one with its atoms all over the place. In some places in the material, the two states butt up against each other. The team was using an electron microscope, which images the arrangement of the atoms using beams of electrons, to examine the boundary where the two states met, and before their eyes, the jumbled side began to line up into the regular crystal pattern. They sat on the finding for a while, not knowing what to do with it, but it nagged at them. It wasn't the first time that a microscope had manipulated a material, but no one had ever made it useful. Their experience made them think, rather than just using microscopes for looking, could we use them to build things at the tiniest of scales? 
Sergei Kalinian and his team have written an opinion piece about what they think would be possible if we could just tweak these microscopes so that they can be builders and not just bystanders. From the very early days of electron microscopy, uh, the practitioners in the field noticed that sometimes the electron beam can uh, interact with your matter and, for example, burn a hole. And, of course, burning the holes, it's annoying and in the community which is focused on imaging stuff, this was perceived to be a damage, so purely deleterious effect. So, however, in the last uh, several years, there was a mounting volume of uh, observations that the changes induced by the electron beam in matter can be much more subtle. So, for example, it can make a single atom, like an interstitial, jump between the equivalent atomic positions. And then we realized that uh, these observations are very numerous, and they all suggest that the electron beam can affect the chemistry or physics on the material, essentially on the atomic level. And uh, this is wonderful because it looks like we have a degree of control which is just unsurpassed in modern technology. There is another technique, isn't there? Scanning probe microscopy that can be used to play with the surface of materials and change them. But why would an electron microscope be any better? So first of all, electron beam is extremely fast. We can move and scan electron beam across the surface much faster than we can move a uh, STM probe. Secondly, the electron beam passes through the material. So we ideally will fabricate not on the surface, but in the bulk of the solid, which means that fabrication becomes much easier. And the third thing is that when the electron beam passes through material, we can switch it from the manipulation mode and imaging mode very fast. So we can observe how the structure forms under the electron beam with atomic resolution at the same time as we fabricate it. What kind of categories of things would you like to ideally make if you had this technique up and running with EM? Ah, okay. This is an excellent question. So this is a general question. Why is it useful? So the first one is probably the classical uh, semiconductor industry. So we know that the classical fabrication techniques are limited to the... So at this point, I think it is something like 7 nanometer structures. But... For the time being, as far as I know, there are no strategies to move it forward. So if we learn how to use the e-beam of the high-resolution microscope to fabricate structures, this is the biggest prize. The prize which is more realistic, in a sense that it's probably useful right here, right now, is the fabrication of the exotic devices like quantum um, qubits. And the third is this is just a new, simply a new way of doing condensed metaphysics or material science. In experiment, we almost always have to deal with the atomic arrangements which are given to us by nature. So the atoms fall in whatever configuration they want, but generally we don't get to say what structure we want to measure. And if we get the capability to manipulate atom and then measure the changes in functional properties by the same electron microscope, this is truly amazing. And what's... Um stopping you <laughs> from doing this. We, electron microscopy is set up uh, as a technique for observing things. And, and actually, you know, obviously, we don't want these, these accidental movements and things to happen normally. So you're going to have to make some changes to the equipment, presumably. Exactly. So if we want to repurpose the electron microscope 
in order to manipulate atoms and create the atomic structures we want, we basically need to solve several closely linked problems. So first of all, we need to be able to tell electron beam to go where we want it to go. But then comes the most important thing. So we know that electron beam will cause atom to move, but we don't know necessarily which direction is going to move. So what we really need to do is we need to collect a library of the cause and effect reactions induced by the electron beam in the solid. The second thing that we want to do is we want to have a feedback. So if the beam goes through the solid, we want to ascertain what change it induces the material structure that while it is happening. But this is a major challenge. You basically have to connect your electron microscope to the supercomputer, and you need the supercomputer to have the programs that control and tell electron microscope what to do. So there's a lot to achieve before we can get this working. But when you dream about it, when you let yourself think what what might be possible, is there one thing that excites you particularly about using the microscopes in this way? I mean, just the whole capability of being arranged the atoms uh, on the where we want them to be is uh, kind of mind-boggling. Practically having the opportunity for the free-form fabrication and uh, in the single atoms inside the solid, that means that you can do pretty much everything. Sergey Kalinin there, who is from Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee in the USA. Stay tuned for the news where we bring you fast radio bursts from space and bright x-rays from a new facility in the Middle East. But now we're joined by Corey Locke reading this week's research highlights. Here's another reason to eat your vegetables. Researchers have found that mice eating food that's low in fiber are at higher risk of bowel infection. This is thanks to those bacteria that call the intestines their home. These microbes need food to eat, and they normally munch on any fiber passing through the gut. But if there's no fiber, they start snacking away on the mucus layer that lines and protects the intestinal wall. When this layer is degraded, the intestines are vulnerable to attack from disease-causing bacteria. Experiments showed that mice that were exposed to a pathogen and ate a low-fiber diet got much sicker than those on a high-fiber diet. You can find out more about the work from the journal Cell. Humans have been farming for millennia, but an ant from the South Pacific has been cultivating plants for millions of years. Scientists have discovered that an ant species in Fiji nurtures seedlings of six different plant species. The ants carry seeds and stick them into cracks in trees where they germinate. The insects also fertilize the seeds with their waste and use the plants for shelter. This is the first time ants have been found to actively plant and cultivate seeds. The researchers think this relationship between the ants and plants evolved about 3 million years ago. Find the study in the journal Nature Plants. Modern astronomy relies heavily on photography. Scientists can learn subtle properties of celestial objects, their speed, rotation, chemical composition, age, all by using computers to analyse photographs. But it wasn't always possible to take photographs with your telescope and plug them into a computer. In the 19th century, sure, you could take the photos, but computers were still a long way off. Humans had to do the work instead, analysing and comparing the images. The vast majority of these early images were analysed by a team of extraordinary women, many of whom went on to change the course of astronomy forever. Science writer Davis Obell 
has written a book called The Glass Universe, which tells the story of these women. Jeff Marsh called David to find out about these early photographs and the human computers that analysed them. Describe for me what the, the early days of stellar photography, what was it, what did it look like, what was the general mood? In the early days of stellar photography, seasoned astronomers were very suspicious of the new gimmick. It did not look like an acceptable substitute for the trained observer's eye. That seems absolutely crazy now to a modern listener, doesn't it, that someone would think that, uh, you know, the human description of the stars was better than a photograph? Well, the descriptions were not casual. They were very careful. You could ascertain the exact celestial coordinates of where things were. That's mostly what people were doing. Astronomy was really in the service of navigation. Accurate star maps were needed, and this was a global enterprise. Once you could take pictures, though, you could do ongoing analysis, and you could look back at the way things were, say, had there been a change, and those changes might be significant. So these photographs, I mean, they weren't paper photographs, they were pictures printed onto glass plates. What do they look like? The plates look like window panes. Most of them are about 8 inches by 10 inches, and they were coated on one side with a photographic emulsion in a plate holder on the telescope. And Harvard College Observatory now boasts half a million of these glass plates in its archives. Have you seen them? I have seen the plates, yes. Some of them are quite beautiful. Some of them have been written on by the people who were studying them. It's an important resource, even today. Creating these photographs and operating the early telescopes was the reserve of male astronomers at the end of the 19th century. But your book tells the story of a handful of extraordinary women hired as human computers to sort of crunch the data in these pictures. That's right. But their data crunching duties soon morphed into discovery duties because they were given the responsibility of studying the images on the plates and they made very interesting discoveries. The first female employees at the observatory were just sort of uh, you know, partners and relatives of the male astronomers, but that shifted as well, didn't it, as, this, as these educated women were feeding in from, from these all-female colleges at the time? Yes, at first it was a, a, totally a family affair. Harvard hired the first outside woman to work at the observatory in the 1870s. Women showed they could do the work, so there was no reason not to hire them, especially as they could be had uh, for a lower pay. Let's hear a little bit about some of the contributions. One of the most important was the um, analysis by Annie Jump Cannon that really put stars into categories. So astronomers had a way of referring to different types of stars. And she put that together. She analyzed the light of about half a million stars. And that system is still in use today. And we won't have time to mention all of the women that you cover in your book, but another lady who I'd like to hear more about is Henrietta Leavitt and um, her discovery about the distant scales of stars. Henrietta Leavitt got to look at plates that were made in the southern hemisphere, and she found a group of stars that 
varied in a very predictable way. And she was able to notice a relationship between the length of time it took these stars to go through their cycle of variation and the brightness that they achieved over those periods. She showed that you could use that relationship to look at similar stars anywhere in the heavens and be able to figure out their relative distances. And with her discovery, other people calibrated those stars, and those techniques were used first to show that the Milky Way was not the only galaxy, that the universe actually consists of many galaxies. Later, that same methodology was used to show that the universe is expanding. Do you think then that modern astronomers and and the public in general have an appreciation for the scale of the contribution of these women to astronomy? I don't think so. That's why I wanted to tell the story. I think in any field where one is involved in day-to-day research, people don't really have a sense of the history. And sometimes knowing that history is enriching. I thought this was a great story. Dava Sobel speaking with Jeff Marsh. Dava's book is out in December, available wherever you get your books. It's full of many more tales about these early astronomers. And keep your eyes peeled because Harvard College Observatory is currently digitising a lot of these early plates, packed full of untapped data. News now and senior reporter Lizzie Gibney joins me in the studio to talk, first of all, about a new synchrotron called Sesame. It's the first synchrotron that's been built in the Middle East. And Lizzie, at the beginning of the year, you made the the forecast that it would be up and running by the end of 2016. That's right. And they've just scraped in for 2016. So next month, we are going to see the first beam circulating in this synchrotron. And so it's it's a light source. Basically, it produces x-rays, very intense, and scientists are able to use those probe inside materials, biological cells, and basically to unearth all kinds of different structures. So it's a really useful tool uh, in science. And this will be the very first one that will be hosted in the Middle East. And the location is significant politically, but also scientifically, isn't it? It's one of the only regions of the world not to have a synchrotron. And they're so kind of bread and butter useful for science that it's going to be a massive boon for the, for the region. But also, it's pretty incredible the just different partners who are involved. So that includes um, Iran, Israel, Palestinian Authority, uh, Pakistan, and I think the rest are Turkey, Bahrain, Cyprus. Um, I hope I'm not missing any out there. And then Jordan, who's hosting. So it involves a lot of countries which you would not imagine would be that happy to sit next to each other around a table. But somehow they've managed to all come together to make this happen. Um, And people are quite excited because... Facilities like this can play a really important role, actually, in uh, fostering peace and collaboration. So CERN started in Europe, the, uh, the particle physics lab near Geneva. That started just after the Second World War. And it's one of the only places where you still had scientists from, for instance, uh, the US and Russia coming together during the Cold War. So these kind of facilities can be um, can be really, really important for, for cooperation and for, for getting people on different sides of conflict to talk to each other. So with all these different players then who historically, even currently, haven't had the easiest of relationships, has it been a straightforward process putting Sesame together? God, no, it's been quite a rocky ride, really. As you can imagine, there's been a lot of political unrest 
in the region um, and a lot of the countries have had difficulties in providing the funding that they're supposed to contribute. I think only two of the member states, Jordan and Turkey, have actually put all the money in that they're supposed to. But there have also just been hurdles that you can begin to imagine, like that the roof fell in in uh, 2013 because of a huge amount of snowfall that no one was expecting. They had problems because Iran couldn't pay its dues because of the sanctions that prevent it from transferring money internationally until January this year. And also two of the Iranian council members were assassinated uh, in 2009 and 10. So it just gives you an idea of how difficult it is sometimes to create a facility like this in a region where there is so much unrest, um, which is why I'm just uh, kind of thrilled that it is finally getting going. Scientists use synchrotrons for all kinds of things, to study materials, to study artefacts, biological samples. And with a view to the artefacts kind of bit of this, this is also a really interesting region for this, the synchrotron to be in, isn't it? Absolutely. If you think of the range of different incredible ancient artefacts which come from the Middle East, so obviously you've got everything from the pyramids of Egypt, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that were found in caves uh, in, in Israel. And some of them really don't travel well. So you just cannot put something that is thousands of years old on a plane. So hopefully this will also open up um, a huge field of study there. The first electrons will start accelerating around this uh, this rig, this setup in December, just squeaking into 2016. Uh, but when can people start actually using them? So it will take a good uh, five or six months, I think, of uh, commissioning. So testing the beam, calibrating it. But then, so from about May next year, scientists are going to be able to apply for time on the beam. And we should get the first science coming out in the second half of next year. So we'll start seeing the first uh, papers with Sesame's name on it. Now, the second story relates to a mystery that we've covered on the podcast before, fast radio bursts. These are kind of emissions from questionable objects. We don't really know where they're coming from. We don't really know what's making them. Um, But there is a new result that unfortunately seems to deepen the mystery even more, Lizzie. Exactly. And it was one that people had hoped would make things clearer. So as a reminder, yes, fast radio bursts, they are very, very short millisecond radio blips that we see and they seem to be coming from absolutely everywhere. Um, So we think because of the way that the signal is kind of smeared out as it travelled through space that it's probably come from a very long way away. So well outside the galaxy, possibly billions of, of light years. But we have absolutely absolutely no idea what is causing them. There are lots and lots of different theories. And something that people have been really looking for is to try and see if they can observe the same fast radio burst, but in a different wavelength. We might get completely different information about what's going on at whatever that event is. So a group at Penn State University searched through data from the SWIFT telescope, which is actually a satellite, a NASA satellite. And they found what looks like a gamma ray emission. So that's much higher energy emission coming from uh, the same direction and at the same time as a previously seen FRB. So you would think, hooray, this should uh, you know, really help us out and figure out what these are. But there are a few problems. The signal is a much higher energy and goes on for much, much longer. So whilst the FRB is just a few milliseconds, the gamma ray signal is uh, somewhere between two and six minutes. That's an enormous amount of energy that it's putting out. One of the leading contenders for what fast radio bursts could be uh, are magnetars. So these are um, neutron stars, very dense stars with huge magnetic fields that could blast out very short-lived flares. But this kind of energy 
just doesn't match coming from a magnetar because the, the flares are very brief, whereas this is going on for, for minutes, potentially. So the magnetar hypothesis was very popular, but there's far too much energy and far too long a burst coming from the gamma ray signals. So those two things don't match. Uh, are there other hypotheses that people that are still floating? I mean, there are still loads. It's not necessarily true that FRBs are all the same thing. It might be that it's a type of signal that we're getting from different kinds of events. But so there are a couple of things that that would match with both potentially the radio signal and the gamma ray signal. Um, one of those would be colliding neutron stars. So these very, very dense stars, when they come together, they would actually form a black hole. And an event like that could, in theory, create both kinds of radiation. However, the, these collisions are expected to be very rare. They're the kind of thing that the LIGO experiment is picking up. Um, but FRBs, it seems like probably one occurs every 10 seconds somewhere in the sky. It's also possible that this is just a coincidence. And it could be that even though it passes the regular statistical tests for assuming that um, a gamma ray signal is coming from the same uh, event as a, as a separate signal, it could be that it's, you know, it's, I think, a one in 800 chance that just background noise could create um, this coincidence if there is, if they're not actually coming from the same source. Thanks, Lizzie. For more on those news stories, nature.com slash news is the place to go. And to find out what research life is really like in a synchrotron like Sesame, we've got just the video for you. 24 hours in a synchrotron. Find it at youtube.com slash nature video channel. That's all for this week, but make sure to check out this month's back chat, all about America's new president-elect, Donald Trump, and how journals like Nature should talk about politics. And if you still haven't heard enough of us by then, be sure to track us down on Twitter, at Climate Adam. And at Minnie Kerry. Thanks for listening. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.